good to see you all back, and uh, we're going to look tonight in the New Testament, so uh, we're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians as we look, continue this journey of, of through the Scripture, remembering the general definition of holy is to be set apart, to be consecrated unto God for a purpose, and what we've looked at already is we understand that God is a missionary God, and He has created us for his glory, he's created us to reflect back his glory, and his name will be honored in that most highly, and, and we're in the process of him restoring us to that original creation purpose. So as we look tonight and get into the New Testament, we're, we're looking at the idea of us being called to be missionary people. If God is a missionary God, and he has now redeemed us and saved us, and he's really restored us back to our original purpose, our, our, our creation purpose of, of glorifying him, of worshiping him with our whole lives so that they're reflecting back his glory, then we must be a missionary people in order to do that because he's decided in his sovereign grace to make the redemption of mankind the aspect that would display his glory most. So he created us and now we've rebelled against him and he's restoring us through Jesus Christ unto salvation. So we now look ahead to the idea that we are a missionary people, called to be a missionary people. So tonight I get to look finally at a passage of Scripture, just one, really, is what we're going to focus in on. We'll hit a couple before then. But uh, of my hero of the faith, Paul, and kind of getting a grasp of, just to set the context, to get a grasp of, Paul's understanding of what the church was called to do, our, that, that we are a people called out by God and given a task. And, and, and he, he relates that to Abraham and the covenant that God had called Abraham to. And uh, he, he firmly sees that, that that covenant, that mission of God that was given to Abraham to be a blessing to all is, is one that was extended to the church. We see that in Galatians chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 9. It says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, so Paul's comparing Abraham to us now, to the church that he's writing. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, you shall be, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that, that's Paul kind of relating and extending that covenant that was given to Abraham so long ago in Genesis when he said that you will be a blessing to all people, all the families. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 3, he's, he's talking about this. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that was that covenant promise that, that God in his continued pursuit of a, of a people to redeem a people. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament picture of, of the Exodus and, and all of those things that God did. 
That was his pursuit of them. That was, that was the fulfillment of this promise. And this promise is fully fulfilled in Paul's eyes as, as we see the Holy Spirit working through the New Testament church and, and being an actual blessing, a light to all the nations. Remember last night we, note, we took note of the fact that God is reversing now what happened in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Instead of all the nations being dispersed, God is bringing one people from all nations together. One people that are in the blood of Christ. So it's no longer about the language. It's no longer about the ethnicity. It's about the blood of Christ uniting us. And we become that one people as he, he makes that reverse. So Paul fully understood his life pur- life's purpose to be to join the mission of God. He, understa- he understood that fully. He understood that it was the covenant that he knew from being a child of Abraham that was the same covenant that the church now has to be a blessing to the Gentiles. And he was called specifically to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. As he did this, as he started churches, as he went on mission trips, he was announcing always that Jesus Christ had come to bear the weight of our sins, to to take the wrath of God against our sins, and that Jesus was resurrected. And Paul was was a witness of that. He had the encounter with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. So he was a, an eyewitness to that in that way, and he, he proclaimed that truth. So if you are a believer in Christ, you are an heir to the covenant that God made with Abraham, and you are given the task, therefore, to be a missionary people, to be a, a light to every nation, to be a blessing to every nation and, uh, until the Lord comes. And that's why we're still here to be a blessing to all other nations. That's the only reason we're still here. Have you ever thought about that? I know a lot of people think about that. As we get closer to death, we begin to think, why does God still have me here? I have a 97-year-old lady in my church. Her name is Miss Myrtle. She's been by herself for many years now, a widow. And she often asks that question but immediately answers it because this lady still lives by herself drives herself to church every single Sunday and if she's not there it's because it's it's just rare it's because she's fallen and broken something or she's in the hospital which happens but she gets back up and she goes she is a testimony to all of us right she often asks the question why am I still here But in that course of conversation, she answers it because of the wisdom that God has given her over these years. And she knows it's to continue to be a light, to continue to be a light to someone. And then everybody always tells Miss Myrtle how much of a light and a blessing she is to so many of us. I want you to see this quote from John MacArthur uh, about that idea of the reason that we are still here on the earth. John MacArthur said, the only reason the church is still on the earth is to do the work of evangelism. Everything else that we do, we could do perfectly in heaven, right? We can worship God perfectly in heaven. We can have fellowship, perfect fellowship in heaven. But there's no evangelism there. So the Lord leaves us in in our imperfections just to achieve this the gathering of his own from the corners of the earth. 
we get that so backwards so much, don't we? We get so focused on what our lives, what we think our lives are supposed to be about here on this earth. And it's so easy to get tangled up in that, especially in our comforts and our riches, as we just sang. But Jesus is more. He's so much more. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die, that's going to be gain. Because we'll be even closer to Christ in fellowship, unbroken, not hindered by our, our sinful nature that continues to try to jump back up and take over and default us back to our old ways. So we are here for that very purpose, the purpose of being a light to the nations. Now we'll finally get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? We're going to look at verses 14 through 21. I feel a little more comfortable when I can just look at one passage of Scripture and just just take that apart. So I'm glad to be here to where the Lord led me tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. And you can follow along as I read. 2 Corinthians 5. 14 through 21, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no more, no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May your word speak to our hearts tonight. Holy Spirit, cut us through our bone and our marrow. For your glory and honor we pray in Jesus' name. So as we look at this passage, I love this passage. As a matter of fact, verse 21, I often put as my signature on my email because I just want everybody that gets an email from me to see that. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's right there in, in in that beautiful verse, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful picture of the propitiation, the, the, the justification that we have in Christ, the fact that we stand now before God and he looks at us as righteous. Well, that's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, have you seen yourself in the mirror lately? I'm not righteous, but that God would look at me at right, as righteous because of the blood of Christ. 
So as we look at this passage, I just want to get started and, and take a look at it. Paul was writing this church, the Corinthian church, for the third time now. He had written them the first letter. He wrote them another letter somewhere in between that God, that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire to be included in the Scripture. And then he's writing them this last letter. And there's a whole lot that goes on in Corinthians. It's a great book to study. From 1 Corinthians when he's confronting the, the sin that was within the church to 2 Corinthians when he's really helping them to come back to terms with restoration of that member and all the other questions in between that had come up in, in, by the Corinthians. It's just a great passage of scripture to look at. Paul spends a lot of his time um, really addressing those who were trying to discredit him, those who were just trying to call, uh, say that his apostleship was false and try to discredit him so that they could disrupt the gospel. And uh, we know that that still exists today. People still come and try to push against the gospel, but... In this passage, in, in 5, he, he begins defending his in, in integrity in the beginning of chapter 5. But in this little section, he gives a beautiful example of the Christian life, of, of the purpose that we have, the reason that we're still on this earth. And it's kind of summed up in that idea of us being ambassadors. And it's beautiful. Why does God allow you to take one more breath? Because you're his ambassador here until you take your last breath. You're his reflection. You're his ambassador to an alien world. You're, he is making his appeal through you. That's an argument. That's a plea. God wants to plead to those to be reconciled who you come in contact with so that he might deliver the elect from the bondage that they have, the bondage that you had once, the bondage that I had once to slavery. So he makes us and restores us into God worshipers. A new creation is what he calls it. A reversal of our rebellion in the beginning of creation. Isn't that a neat contrast there as you're reading through this and he says a new creation. It points all the way back to the beginning because we were a new creation in the beginning of this week when we looked in Genesis, right? He made us, male and female he made us. He made us in his image. We marred that image with sin but now we are a new creation. We've come to be known as new creations. So that's why we have baptism. It's a beautiful picture of new life, right? When, when we pull somebody up out of that baptistry, we're celebrating a new creation. It doesn't happen in that moment. It's already happened. It's just representing what has taken place on the inside. So let's look at verse 14. In 14, he says that we are, and I forget to push along through here. So in 14, it says that we are controlled by the love of Christ. Followers of Christ are completely dominated by the love of Christ. Some of your versions probably say constrained, right? We are constrained, we are controlled, we are captured. The idea of this really points to the, the idea of somebody that's hemmed in on all sides, you could think of somebody who was in a prison or something like that. If they were in a very small prison cell and they have walls on all sides of them, it has compelled them, it has constrained them. They, they have no control outside of, of whoever's over them. So a prisoner, you think of a prisoner, a prisoner has no control of their life anymore. They do what the state tells them to do. They do what their prison guard tells them to do. They go where they 
the prison guard says they, they have to ask permission to do anything, even use the restroom. They are in complete control of those authority over them. And Paul is saying, when we have trusted Christ, when we have followed Christ, now we have come under complete control, constrained, so that we, we need to think about every action, every movement that we make is under the control of Christ If that's not our motivation, the love of Christ is not our motivation, then something is wrong. If if, if the love of Christ is not controlling everything that we do, then something's out of place. And as Christians, that's what alerts us to realize, okay, something needs to be surrendered to Christ because something's out of place. It's It's keeping me from following the control of Christ. So Paul says it plain and clear. He says, we are under the control of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us because of this reason. We've concluded something. Some, some reason has given us this idea and understanding that we are under control. Now, Paul was overwhelmed by the, the love of Christ as he looks here. It defined his life. From the moment that he was saved after this Damascus experience, he was constrained, he was controlled by Christ. It dominated his life. It determined where he went and when he went. If you remember as he was going through Acts and, and he was praying about where to go next and he had this great big continent of Asia in front of him and he was walking through it on the path and he wanted to go and share the gospel but the Holy Spirit said, no, you go over here. And he directed his path. So we see that's just one example of Paul being constrained, being controlled, being led by the Holy Spirit, by God, controlled by the love of Christ. Paul was so dominated by this because he couldn't get over the fact that Jesus had loved a blasphemer like Saul. That, that Jesus would redeem someone like Saul. That Jesus would die in his place and be raised in order to transform Saul into Paul. See, he had a real understanding of this new creation idea because God changed his name. He changed it from Saul to Paul. His whole identity in this world that we live in today is filled with the the identity politics of of I'm going to determine who I am and I'm going to tell you and you have to respect me and call me by what I tell you my name is and all of these things or who I identify as today. Paul understood that his identity was completely, completely determined and defined by the love of Christ. So this is what drove him. This is what guided him. He writes of this idea uh, in Ephesians 2.10. If you remember that passage of Scripture, it's a beautiful passage. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are his workmanship. This is one of my favorite passages because the word that he uses there for workmanship is the Greek word poema, which you can kind of get the idea it comes from, the, we get the word poem from that, right? It's the idea of a masterpiece. It's as if Jesus, if, as if God is the master artist and he is putting together his masterpiece and he has shaped us and made us, all right? Does that not point back to creation, right? Genesis 1, 26, like we said, let us make them in our image. In the image of God, he made them male and female, he made them. 
So God has sculpted us. He has made us. Or if we want to think of God as the artist, as the poem writer. He has written his masterpiece poem in you. In you. He is telling his story through you and through me. That's an even better way to think about it, isn't it? You and I are his masterpiece. And he's telling a story through us. And that should drive our entire lives. That should determine what we do and what we say, how we act, how we live, where we work, where we play. It determines everything. Paul says, and this is what Paul is doing in this part of the letter. He's given this little synopsis of the Christian life and showing us what it really is all about following Christ. So you and I are God's poem. You're his poetry. And he's writing a story to everyone that they might see his glory. Paul saying that this is what motivated him. This is what motivated him. This is what motivated his missionary team. And he knew the Corinthians could see it because they had observed him. They knew who he was. Remember, he's just getting past this part of the first part of chapter 5 where he's defending his integrity. So in the way, he's still kind of doing that. He's saying, look, this is my life. He's, he's kind of giving the example. This is what God has called us to. And we're living this out. We're, we're God's story before you. So we see why he does what he does. In short, he's doing what, Galatians, what he says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ that lives within me. We can look at our own lives and we can look in the mirror and we can see. Belief determines behavior. So we can see our behaviors. And when we look at our behaviors, we can see what we truly believe. So the question tonight when you walk out that door and you look at that mirror, the question I'm going to ask myself as well is what kind of story is my life telling? What kind of poetry is emanating from me to the rest of the world? Is it it God's masterpiece? Is he making his plea through me? Is he appealing to the lost across the nations to bring them to himself? Because that's really the only reason you and I are still here. For him to tell that story through us. Then this statement that I love in, uh, in, in, as Paul is saying in 14, he's saying, so the love of Christ controls us because of this. And this is the statement. That one has died for all and therefore all have died. Now, a lot of scholars think that that was probably an early creed in the New Testament church. And what I mean by that is a little creed was just a common confession, something very quick that they could say, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And they would know what that meant. They would know the the richness and the depth of that. It would call to attention the basic doctrines of their beliefs. And that that was a creed. There were a lot of early creeds in the New Testament church, and Paul uses a lot of them in his letters because they would have been familiar with those things. See, they came up with it long before the three musketeers, right? One for all and all for one. One died for all, therefore all have died. Do you see the meaning in that? It's not just that we... 
it's not that we have died physically. One died for us, therefore we've all died to ourselves and we live for the one. That was the common creed. That was what held them together. That's what spurred them on. And that's what Paul says here. This is why the love of Christ compels us. It controls us. It determines what we do and what we say. Because one died for all. And I've died to self to live for him. Verse 15. At this point, many want to determine and argue and talk about what the definition of for all means. I'll read verse 15 again. Verse 15, he says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the rest of the explanation that he gives of this little short creed. But a lot of people have gone over the years and tried to determine what does is, what is for all mean? Well, for obviously means in substitution, in place of, but they really want to get down to the idea of what does all mean? Who does all mean? Is he talking about all the world? Is this universal salvation for everybody? There's, there's no strings attached, just everybody's going to be saved? Because that's what they're pushing nowadays. That's what they pushed back then, that you can believe whatever you want to believe, and all the religions are pointing the same direction. That's what they're saying. That's not what this verse is saying at all, but a lot of people have wondered over the years, does it mean that his death was for all, but only a few are going to be saved? I think we all can come to the agreement that his death is sufficient for all, but efficient for those who are believers. Verse 15, the rest of it shows clearly that this is not a universal salvation because it says for those who have believed. In verse 15, at the end he says, Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, those who are following him, those who are living for him, who for their sake died and was raised. So in the context, we know that this is referring to those who belong to Christ. So we have, we are those who have the true faith in Christ. We've been arrested and captured, compelled, controlled, constrained by the love of Christ controlled by that love and now we live for him we've been restored to our creation purpose and he's led us to be transformed that's the next part that i want us to look at as he continues on with verse 16 through 21 this is our purpose to live for him to live in a way that reflects him and it means it's a transformed life it's a new life so let me read 16 again 16 says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. From now on, meaning from that point of salvation on, from the moment that we were saved, from now on, we regard no one in terms of the flesh. What does that mean? That means that our worldview has to change. It has, to, it has to change. The way we see the world, now we are to see the world with the eyes of the love of Christ. And that should change everything about what we see. I keep taking these stupid things off because when I look out there, you're just a blur. And I want to see your faces. But when I look down there, if I don't have them on, that's just a blur. And I want to see the words. A world, yeah, I know I need some of those, but I don't want to admit it. <laughs> Too much pride. 
Um, <laughs> yes. But this is the best example of a worldview. Because when we put on these lenses, it helps us see things from a certain perspective. So now I see you totally different. You're very blurred. You look like a, a Renaissance picture. Uh, uh, you just, you're just blurred. I see you different. If I take it off, I can zero in. I can see you a lot better. What, Christ, what Paul is talking about here is that when we come to follow Christ, we are given as new creation, new vision. Now, Paul understood this better than anybody. Think back to his history. When he came to Christ, he went blind, right? And he was given new eyes to see. What, a, what an upfront, in-your-face kind of illustration that would never leave Paul. He understood that idea of the worldview, of putting on a new perspective. So what Paul is saying is one of the aspects of your transformation in following Christ is you're going to see the world in a different way and you're going to see people in a different way. One of the things that we're going to see is that we're no longer going to see, we're going to see people as either saved or lost. We also see the difference between knowing a person casually by acquaintance and knowing a person by experience and and Paul knew Christ by experience he tells us we should look at people and really we should see saved or lost there's no other dividing line that's the only real division that matters in this world is saved or lost and that determines everything about the way we treat that person I've been treated by you in a very loving fashion because you've recognized the Spirit of the Lord in me and I've recognized the Spirit of the Lord in you and we are brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter that we've never met before. We're brothers and sisters. We're bound by that. But now when we see somebody who's lost what we should see, the perspective that we should put on and, and, and help us to see is that they need Christ. They need they need the witness of a reflecting poetry story of redemption in front of them. And that's what our life must be. So we look at life different. We look at it from a different perspective. Verse 17. I'll go on and read the next verse. Verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is just a beautiful passage. One of my wife's favorite passages uh, because she, she pictures the idea of transformation, the, the, the butterfly as it goes into the cocoon in, in, in one state and then comes out new. In the early church, the butterfly was a picture of resurrection. It was a symbol that they used to refer to the resurrection because of that state of transformation, of metamorphosis that took place there. So we are a new creation, a brand new creation. Paul concludes the previous verse with the word so. So we have this new life. He died for us, therefore we are a new creation. This is a radical transformation that must take place. Radical transformation, a radical setting apart unto holiness. Our God is holy. We are called to be holy. This is part of the process of God making us holy. Verse 18, Paul highlights that God had reached out to us to restore us. In verse 18, he says, 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now he's going to use this word reconcile or reconciliation about five times in this passage of scripture. You guys know when when a biblical author uses a word repeatedly, they didn't have highlighters back then. They couldn't emphasize it any other way. So they just repeated it over and over and over. So he uses this because he wants us to take focus of this word, reconcile, ministry of reconciliation. God Paul makes sure that we understand it was God who was the missionary. He is the one who restored us. He's the one who came after us to reconcile us and then to make us ones who would help others to be reconciled. So we look then at verse 19. So we know we are given, in in verse 18, we know that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. That means we are his instruments for the ministry of reconciliation. We are. Verse 19, Paul seems to be saying and kind of repeating that, saying, did you get that? He didn't want him to miss it. So he repeats the word reconcile over and over again. Verse 19, he says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us The message of reconciliation. That's a stewardship right there. God has given us his instruments, the stewardship of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. What a high calling he has entrusted us with. It's as if we were once isolated, you know, quarantined, held captive in our slavery to sin or in our houses, forced to wear masks and all that stuff. And somebody came and knocked on our door and freed us from that. And now we've been given the task to go to all those others who have been isolated and quarantined and held captive to their sin and give them the message of freedom. To stand before them and proclaim the truth to reflect the glory of Christ. Verse 20 through 21, Paul makes his conclusion. He brings it all to the conclusion. In view of what God has done for us in Christ, we've been given a divine charge to proclaim the gospel. Let me read verses 20 and 21 again. Therefore, so he's summing it all up. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul concludes with this beautiful picture, this vivid image of an ambassador. When I was a kid growing up, I thought that was probably the best job there could ever possibly be. I mean, you just go to dinner parties and eat exotic foods, and that's all you do. And then you just tell people what the president told you to tell them. I mean, there's no responsibility. There's nothing you have to do. You just, you're just telling it, and that's exactly what an ambassador did. In that day, the king would send out an ambassador. He was not allowed to say what he wanted to say. He was not allowed to put forth his message or his determinations. His sole job was to represent the king, to say everything that the king told him to say. And that's what Paul is saying we are. We are his ambassadors, given, entrusted, stewarded 
the ministry of reconciliation because God is making his appeal through us. He's telling his story. He's written his poetry in you and me to tell his story of reconciliation, making his appeal that people would be reconciled to God. He is the source of reconciliation. It's something that he accomplished when he stopped counting our trespasses against us. And he did that because of Christ substituting in place of the judgment we deserved. And that's the only reason we are still here. Paul's shown his work. He's shown what he was called to do for the Corinthians. And he's called them to that same ministry now. Our part is to be set apart in obedience and to share the message that God is pleading, be reconciled, making his appeal through us. When he says this, the word that he uses in the Greek is parakaleo, which is the same word used in other parts of Scripture to refer to the Holy Spirit. Now that's a beautiful promise for us because the promise is, the idea, the picture is that he is coming along in this calling and he is making that call through us. Because we often worry, well, what will I say? What will I do? How will I explain it? And believe me, we talk about some of the people that we know, some of our relatives who are lost. Maybe we've talked to them 20 times before until they're blue in the face and we're blue in the face and it's never gotten through. And we talk one more time and all of a sudden lightning strikes, they understand. It's because it's the job of God to get that across. We're just the ones he's doing it through. But we've got to be obedient and willing to do that because of the call that we have to be a missionary people. And he says that the Holy, he gives that picture of the idea that the Holy Spirit is going to be with us in that calling. He's going to be working through the words that we are saying to them. And that leads us right down to the last passage of Scripture I wanted us to read. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. You've heard this one before. Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul goes on. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God has a beautiful message that he wants to put through us. So tonight as you look in that mirror, maybe we'll angle it down a little bit. I want you to ask yourself two questions. What do my feet look like right now? And what kind of story is God telling through me? How is he telling his glory? How is he reflecting his glory through my life to those who are around me? God reflecting his story about his glory through our lives. Would you join me in prayer?
Brother Mickey, Pastor Mickey, if you want to come up, you can. Father, we know that you've called us to something that is beyond us, beyond our strength and our intellect, our willingness, but by your by your sovereign grace, somehow, Lord, you determined that you would work through our willfulness. That you would redeem us. You would break into us and give us the gift of salvation, the gift of belief and faith that we might be freed enough to see that you're calling us to life. Calling someone from death to life is only something that you can do, Father. So when we go out on missions and we get so burdened thinking about our own strength and our own words and our own abilities and our own powers, Father, it weighs us down and I'm guilty of that as well. Lord, I thank you for your word because it frees us to know that our sole responsibility on this earth now that we have you as Lord and Savior is to follow you in obedience, to worship you by reflecting your glory and to do that in a way that proclaims it to everyone around us. To the ends of the earth, a light to all nations. So Father, strengthen us. Give us resolve. As we sang tonight, make us believe so that we will behave in such a way that will bring you glory. Father, we just want to make ourselves available now tonight for you to write your poetry through us. So make us believe and tell your story. All for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.